All right, Devin, we are going to do another mini episode about something that we're obsessed with this week. Mm-hmm. And so what are you obsessed with this week? All right. So I have had this one in my back pocket. So maybe not this week, but I've been thinking about it for a few weeks because I um, was advising our staff on an issue a little while back and it made me think, gosh, I really need to like write this stuff down. I was surprised that I couldn't find more in the literature on this topic. I actually find that a lot in clinical ethics. Like there's a kind of gap in what I think most people would agree on as good practice and actually it that good practice being documented and published in the literature. So Yeah, so, I agree. It, yeah. it happens so often, especially we in clinical ethics, we kind of get um, maybe like rules of thumb or like best practices that everyone kind of agrees upon, mm-hmm. but they're not published anywhere. Yeah. So shape up clinical ethicists, start publishing this work because it's important. <laughs> I <laughs> say to right. myself as I have this document in front of me that has a bunch of uh, rules that I think are important, but I've never seen written down. Okay. Uh-huh. So the topic that was brought up was palliative sedation. So have you ever heard of palliative sedation? I have, but palliative means symptom management, right? Right. And sedation means going to sleep. <laughs> right. Good. So we can deduce from that. <laughs> <laughs> so you so we're putting people to sleep to make them feel better? Right, typically. So there's um we want to be really precise. Palliative sedation in general would just mean that sometimes we need to sedate patients in order to treat their symptoms. So if they're so agitated or they're in so much pain that they we're having a hard time treating them. Sometimes um, the treatment that we give can also sedate. Um, and okay. that can be to the point of unconsciousness sometimes. There's also terminal palliative sedation. And this, just like it sounds, means sometimes at the end of life, pain is so intolerable that there's an, almost no way to treat it or really no other way to treat it. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's no other way to treat it than completely sedating the patient to unconsciousness so that they can die more peacefully. Ooh, okay. So for example, we have somebody who has, I don't know, what's a really painful condition, like bone cancer. Yeah, bone cancer. That's, that's right? the first thing I thought of too. Yep. Yeah. So bone cancer is really, really painful. And the normal pain medication isn't working. Is that the what, what the situation is? Right. So it's actually not all that common. We can typically relieve pain symptoms at the end of life, but there are some conditions that are just so painful that there's no way you could give the amount of appropriate pain medication without accidentally killing them or hastening their death or mm-hmm. putting them into an unconscious state. So we want to be really careful when we do this, but there are times in which that is really the only way to manage symptoms is to um, sedate somebody so heavily that they become unconscious before they die. So, okay. so most hospitals will have some sort of policy on when this is acceptable and when it's not acceptable. So we had a um, question from staff about a patient who had come in with, I'd say, moderate dementia, but this was his only condition. This was his only illness. And he was getting a little um, aggressive with staff. And he was in, he had a kind of chronic pain condition as well. And we were palliating the chronic pain condition, but his aggressive behavior was pretty intolerable to. Uh, the staff at the time and to his wife 
and she asked us to give him terminal palliative sedation. Mm. So it's I one thing I love about clinical ethics is that the layers just keep going and going, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got palliative sedation, we're laying on terminal palliative sedation, mm-hmm. and then we're laying layering on terminal palliative sedation for a, a psychiatric condition, right? So dementia. And then we're laying layering on palliative terminal palliative sedation for a psychiatric problem being requested by a surrogate. Mm-hmm. All right. Yes. So you can maybe imagine why this made staff uncomfortable. Yeah. Because so dementia is technically a terminal illness, but mm-hmm. you are not terminal in the terminal phase until we project you have approximately six months of life or less. So in the state of Texas and in most places, this is the requirement. We can't call you terminal until you reach a state where physicians would say it is predictable that you would die within the next six months. So, okay. And how good are doctors about predicting whether there's six months left to live <laughs> or not? Well, it sort of depends on the condition. So in general, not great, but not so far off. It's it's not typical that a doctor would say, yeah, it makes sense to me that you die in the next six months and then you live 20 more years. That's pretty mm-hmm. rare. Um, mm-hmm. Are they perfect or exact with this? I mean, six months is sort of an arbitrary line, except that it counts for hospice and it counts for the condition of terminal. Mm-hmm. So you are eligible for hospice if doctors say they think you only have six months or less to live. Um, or in the state of Texas and in many other states, your living will or MPOA, your medical power of attorney, only kicks in when you are in the terminal phase of an illness. So that, okay. that six months really matters legally, um, even if we recognize that it can be a little squishy around the edges. So it's a best prediction. But mm-hmm. dementia is really hard in that it's so hard to say with dementia exactly how much time somebody might have left. So there are uh, stages of dementia that we um, associate with the sort of terminal phase. But this patient has what I would call moderate dementia and is probably not at the end stage of life. Okay. So maybe not terminal in the way that you described it. Probably not. So the first question is, you know, so our hospital only will do this under that condition. So, and that I've never seen a hospital policy that didn't say that. So if you're going to give terminal sedation, it has to be in the terminal phase of an illness. So that's sort of the first question is, you know, is he in the terminal phase of this illness? And what I'm hearing from staff is like, probably not, you know, he, he has had dementia for some time, but we don't think he's at end stage dementia quite yet. Gotcha. Okay. But despite that, his wife is requesting this sedation. Right. And so this is, and this is not something we hear very often, right? So typically family members, unless they're in the medical field themselves, wouldn't just know what palliative sedation was. So my very smart intern Googled, just Googled palliative sedation because she was also unfamiliar, I think. And she said, did Mm -hmm. you know 
Dr. Stahl. I make her call me Doc. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I think she does call me Dr. Stahl. <laughs> <laughs> so she says, Dr. Stahl, did you know when you Google palliative sedation, one of the first things that comes up is um, a right to die website that advocates for physician assisted death and says on that website that if you live in a state that doesn't allow for physician aid in dying or medical aid in dying, that you can instead request palliative terminal sedation. Oh, interesting. This reminds me of another topic we, we, we covered in a previous episode about voluntary stop, VSED, voluntary mm-hmm. stopping eating and drinking as another way of controlling end of life in, situ- in places where physician-assisted suicide or physician um, aid in dying is not legal in that jurisdiction. So this is a different workaround? Well, so this would be similar. And, and remember in that episode, we talked about the sort of, again, the staff um, being more or less comfortable with the idea of like aiding somebody in dying by relieving pain symptoms associated with stopping eating and drinking. So one difference there is that it's typically patient initiated. So the patient, him or herself, says, I want to stop eating and drinking um, so that I can die. This case with palliative terminal sedation would be um, like that in that we would, what was being requested was that we stop feeding um, this patient so that he could die. Um, But in the meantime, to sedate him so that he wouldn't experience any of the associated pain or discomfort with stopping eating and drinking. Okay, interesting. And so in the way that I understand VSED or voluntary stopping eating and drinking is that the patient themselves is making that choice to not eat, right? Mm -hmm. But in this situation, what you're describing is that we healthcare providers are sedating the patient to the point that they're asleep, basically. Mm -hmm. And when you're asleep, you can't eat or drink. Mm -hmm. And that will be actually the, the modality of their death. So that's correct. So this makes, it's one thing for a patient to ask for this. It still makes a lot of staff uncomfortable. It's still more uncomfortable that this is being requested by his wife. So then the question is, do you think that the patient would have wanted this? And the staff is generally agreeing, no, I mean, he has some pain issues, but now that we're medicating him properly, they seem to be relieved. He was pretty agitated, but we've been able to relieve that as well. So we're not really sure, now that we've been able to relieve his pain and distress, there seems to be no reason to go this extra step, but she's requesting it and saying that this is what she thinks he would want, or he would have wanted in a state in which he was not demented. Mm. Yeah. So if the condition that justifies palliative sedation is intractable or uncontrollable pain, this, the, the case that you're presenting is that that condition doesn't apply. And therefore, maybe palliative sedation in general wouldn't even be appropriate. Exactly. So we get to rule number one of oh, six. Do- <laughs> <laughs> are these Stahl's rules? These are Stahl's rules for terminal sedation. Rule right. number one, the patient must be experiencing uncontrollable or refractory symptoms despite optimal treatment strategies. So this is a treatment of last resort. You only give terminal palliative sedation if there's no other way to relieve the symptoms of pain and distress at the end of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I I can get on board with that first one. Does it require, Stahl's rules number one for palliative (laughs) sedation, does that require that all other treatment 
options have been exhausted and proved to fail? Well, yes and no. Um, all other reasonable treatment options that the physician thinks would potentially work. So it's not any and everything. You're not, you know, giving things for the sake of giving them, but the physicians need to agree. Basically, we've tried everything that makes sense in this particular case. Yep. Everything that's reasonable. Okay, yep. great. Okay. So rule number two, and uh, I know people are going to slam me on this because I know people hate this phrase, is uh, we have to follow the rule of double effect. Oh, boo. <laughs> Okay, but or I'll rephrase because it's only actually applicable to a couple of the double effect rules. We cannot give terminal pallia sedation with the intent of causing the patient's death. Okay. So um, our, the intent of palliative terminal sedation should be to relieve the symptoms of pain. Right. So this okay. is why we, we sedate people is because that's the only thing that's going to help relieve their pain symptoms or their distress symptoms but we can't be doing it with the intention of killing them. Right, okay. So are you okay so, with that articulation yep. of it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, I, I'm on board with we don't, we, sh we ought not to kill our patients right. intentionally. Yeah, and I get, so we should have a whole episode on double effect because it's, it's more complicated than that. And I, I know people are gonna give me pushback on this, but in, in general, we, this is not w what we're trying to do. The intent of the, of the sedation is to relieve pain symptoms, not to hasten the death of the patient. And in this case, it's pretty clear that the wife of this patient, her goal is actually to end the patient's life in a mm. um, more controlled and peaceful way. And that's right. not a bad intention. It's just that that's not what we do in the state of Texas. Or, or in most other states, particularly those that don't allow physician-assisted suicide. That's right. So there's only a handful of those. So in every other state, you have to mind this rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So intentions matter. I'm on board yep. with that one. Okay. <laughs> All right. Rule number three is I'm calling proportionality. Okay. It's related, but um, slightly differently articulated in that I want to say the level of sedation provided should be as little as needed to relieve the patient's symptoms. So we're not maxing out pain medication simply for the fact, for the goal of putting him under or making him unconscious. We level up Right, so we try, typically, um, and a palliative care team will do this, I'll get this to a second, but you give what you think would be inadequate. You don't wanna start too low because um, a lot of these drugs take a while to kick in. So you don't wanna you know, start so low that it's not gonna do anything and you can't actually get them pain relief for several days, that would be bad. But you don't wanna max it out first go. You wanna mm -hmm. give what you think is reasonable and then ratchet it up if that's not working. Um, you don't wanna immediately sort of just knock them out unconscious, giving pain relief. Right. And so the the phrase that we hear all the time in the hospital is that they titrate, mm -hmm. right? That they're titrating the medication to the to the symptoms. Okay. Right. All right. I'm on board with that one too. Okay. So this one also isn't working for us in this case because it seems like the goal, even if the goal is not to hasten death, the goal shouldn't be simply to induce coma or deep sleep, but it should again be to relieve symptoms. So we need to make sure that we're doing that appropriately. All right. Mm -hmm. Rule number four, uh, I'm calling terminality. And we've sort of already hit on this, but um, you need to have consensus that the patient is in a terminal phase of their illness. Okay. So that rule right. of six months again. Um, and actually for palliative sedation or terminal palliative sedation, most agree that the patient should actually be imminently dying, like even more so than six months 
they need if you're going to stop feeding um, them or giving them hydration and nutrition they need to be pretty close to death probably even closer okay. than six months so this is kind of debated but i think actually it shouldn't merely be six months it might it should be more like days to weeks at best okay um, because because it'll actually potentially be the not feeding them that will be the cause of their death um, and we don't want that to be the case right okay so again we we ought not to kill our patients <laughs> a lot of these sort of hit on this um <laughs> all right the rule number five is we need to get appropriate consent so the patient or their legal representative has to be aware of a few things so this the kind of components of informed consent that the patient does have an irreversible illness that the patient could die in this unconscious state while sedated um, and that palliative sedation is the sort of route we're going. So this isn't necessarily a problem in this case, but there is some worry in the literature that I found that, you know, we might be not well explaining what the goals of palliative sedation are. So we want to make sure that that's the case. And in any case, um, and maybe especially this case, we'd want to check in about why the legal representative, why the surrogate is choosing this. Right, so what are the motivations? What are the intentions? What do they think the patient, him or herself, would have wanted? And we should do a whole episode about this because I think it's really fascinating. But in a case like with this patient, where he actually seems to have no intent to die, um, but his surrogate, his wife, is saying, "Oh, if he um, prior to his dementia, he would have said this was an intolerable state, but in his demented state, he's saying, no, I'm fine." Uh, which which person, the before person or the current person, wins out in that debate? Yeah, that's that that needs to be a whole different episode because, <laughs> yeah, that that gets really complicated really quickly when we start talking about uh, current persons versus past persons mm -hmm. in in terms of wishes and interests and um, that stuff. So yeah, interesting. But so rule number, what are we on? Rule number five. That was Saul's five, rules five. Number, <laughs> number five. So this one is basically that this that this decision to pursue palliative sedation is okay for a surrogate to request if these conditions are met. Right. Yep. And then number six, the final rule, I like calling them rules um, okay. because it sounds very legal and, and mandatory, um, is that you need to you need to consult supportive and palliative care. So most, most hospitals will have a team, gosh, I hope so, um, and I know they don't all, but hopefully you have a supportive and palliative care team whose job it is to think about appropriate levels of pain medication, um, support people with goal making at the end of their lives, like these sorts of things. They are the best team to administer palliative terminal sedation, but also to work with families about whether this is appropriate or not for the patient. Yeah. So one of the hospitals that I do consulting with actually renamed their palliative care team to the Advanced Illness Management Team. Oh, interesting. Which I kind of liked. Yeah, because part of what we think about with palliative care is that provision that they're working with serious illness conversations, right? Right. Yeah. Well, good. All right. So do those six rules answer the questions presented <laughs> in your case? Well, so in our case, um, at least as it was initially presented to me, almost none of these conditions had been met. Okay. So um, the, the patient we didn't think was terminal, we thought the intent was to end his life. Um, we thought it wasn't, we weren't at that proportional stage yet where we had actually tried things that were working and so we didn't need to ratchet them up. Um, there was consent, although I will say, and this is sort of, I think, 
unfortunate. When um, it was brought to the wife's attention that ethics was reviewing the case, she immediately kind of retracted her request and said, oh, no, never mind. I don't like as if we were the ethics police or she was somehow going to get in trouble. And that's to me, an unfortunate reaction, because I think it says something about about how people think about ethics. But yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I I present ethics, especially in the clinical setting, when people are like, well, who are you and what are you doing? I just generally describe it as we're here. Our team is here to help make difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we often get that uh, th that misconception that we're there as the police or to tell people what is right and wrong, which really is not the role of clinical ethics. Yeah. Or to somehow like get people in trouble for asking for things. There is no... So it kept uh, people kept asking me, is it okay for her to ask this, ask for this? And I kept saying, she can ask for anything, right? It's our yeah. job to say whether she can receive have that. it or not, yeah, right? right? Have yeah. it or not, if if, if we want to fulfill that request. But you should never feel like you're going to get in trouble for asking for something for your loved one or for yourself while in the hospital, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there are some physicians who are like, oh gosh, they you know, went on Dr. Google and now they're, but I actually think that's a minority of people. We want people mm -hmm. to be involved and to ask questions. Th that's appropriate. So what she asked for wasn't something we could do, but it wasn't an inappropriate question. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. What an interesting topic. I bet there's going to be a lot of uh, comments and uh, feedback about uh, Stahl's rules. But... <laughs> well, I hope so. And actually, can I throw out one more thing that actually I realized after the case yeah. resolved that I, I didn't quite think about. I realized that um, there is a big debate about whether existential suffering counts in these cases. Yeah, that's actually, uh, I've been involved in cases where that was the case. And may maybe that's a topic for another episode as well, this idea of existential suffering, mm -hmm. terminal existential suffering. Right. So just to, and just to tease the listeners, it's I think most people would agree that if somebody was at the end of their life and they were experiencing just unbearable, intractable suffering, I don't think there are many people who would say it's not okay to sedate them to the point where they're, they fall asleep so they don't experience that pain, right? That, yeah. That'd be weird to demand somebody experience horrible pain at the end of their lives. Mm -hmm. But what is much more debated is whether existential suffering, by which we mean they're just ex like kind of experiencing such mental anguish, right? It maybe isn't physical, but it is so existential, so distressing. Like, psycho like psychologically yeah. and emotionally. Yeah. And usually that's about the fear of death, or it might be about just other life circumstances. Right? Does that count? Because they're pretty distressed um, and, and often very anxious, and we can control some of those symptoms. But, you know, sometimes not all of our suffering is physiological pain suffering, right? We all right. recognize that we can be in terrible suffering that isn't necessarily biologically based, although maybe I'll get pushed back on that too. Maybe it's all somehow yeah. biologically based, but uh, right. should that also be, should people like that also be potentially receiving palliative sedation? And uh, I think some people will say no and some people will say yes. So that's that's a debatable yeah. topic. Yeah, great topic. I, Thanks. big fan of Stahl's rules. Thanks. Cool. Okay. <laughs>